It was just after dark on February 17, 1864. Commander Dixon and his seven crewmen had been sailing beneath the waves off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina for hours, undetected by the fleet of Union blockade ships. The crew of the Hundley were tired and cramped inside their steel ship, the third in a line of two others who were lost to mechanical mishaps before ever entering service. But this time, everything seemed to be going to plan. The crew pushed hard on the hand-powered camshaft, spinning the Hunley's single three-blade propeller, silently powering her towards her target. The 1,260-ton steam-powered gunship, the USS Housatonic. She carried a single weapon, a 135-pound black powder bomb stuck on the end of H.L. Hunley's 16-foot spar, called a torpedo by the sailors of the day. The ship itself was 40 feet long, cylindrical, with a tapered bow and stern, two narrow towers and a double row of small glass skylights, or deadlights, between them were all that broke the surface of the dark Atlantic waters. On the USS Housatonic, sailors kept watch, alert for small boats that had tried before to attach explosives to her hull, while other sailors fired artillery shells at the city only a few miles distant. There were rumors of a new stealth ship built by the Confederacy, but no one took these too seriously. After all, the Housatonic had been there for months, without much Confederate resistance at all. If the Confederacy had such a weapon, it clearly wasn't a threat. But tonight, Robert F. Fleming Jr. noticed a small sliver of smooth darkness on the waves. It had the appearance of a plank moving through the waters, he recalled. It took a moment, but he was convinced he'd found a threat, and he alerted other sailors on board who stared at it in confusion. Was it a porpoise? A piece of debris? Some bizarre new ship? Eventually, they sounded the alarm. The Housatonic slipped her chain, backed her engines, and all crews scrambled to general quarters. But by then, the Hunley spar had connected with the wooden hull of the Housatonic just below the waterline. The pressure of contact released the metal contact trigger, ramming it back into a glass vial of mercury fulminate and shattering the vial, igniting the chemicals within, and in turn igniting the massive black powder charge behind it detonating in a colossal explosion, spraying shattered wood high into the air, killing five sailors and breaking the keel of the Housatonic. Within minutes, the 205-foot-long warship that had terrorized Charleston for months filled with water and slipped beneath the waves, leaving her surviving crew stranded and struggling to find rescue. As for the Hunley, she and her crew never returned to port. In fact, there was no word from her at all until over 130 years later, in 1995, when her own wreck was found, lying nearly 30 feet below the surface of the waters off Charleston. The ship was mostly intact, with her crew still at their posts. No signs of damage or struggle. No attempt to escape. Almost as if they had just agreed to sink their ship and wait quietly and passively to meet their end after their successful mission opening the doors for a whole new mystery waiting to be solved. Welcome back to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Dana Levin, and today I'm bringing you a special episode as a break from the Kumluka shipwreck, but still in the same vein. I had the privilege to speak with Dr. Rachel Lance, a PhD in biomedical engineering at Duke University, who specializes in injury and trauma biomechanics. She just released a book titled In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine, 
which is a fascinating read, and I wanted to share some of her insights with you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with her as much as I did. Sounds good. Okay. So, hi, Rachel. Tell me who you are and how you got into all this stuff. Hi, Dana. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm an assistant consulting professor at Duke University, where I mostly study undersea and on hyperbaric physiology. And um, I really like examining what happens to the human body when it's placed in situations where it just really shouldn't be. Uh, I do that as a PhD biomedical engineer. And so I do get kind of a sampling across the board of all different kinds of blast and ballistic trauma. As an injury biomechanist, I get kind of a different sampling of all the different types of trauma out there. But my favorite thing to study is blast and ballistic trauma. So I spend a lot of time looking at the various ways that explosions can injure and kill people. And I recently finished a project and wrote a book about one specific explosion, which was the bomb set by the Civil War submarine H.L. Hunley in 1864. So basically... People in my world of medicine pick up the pieces after it explodes. You take it a step further and try to figure out how that happened and what was going on. Yes, exactly. So I love it when people like you write detailed case reports and <laughs> provide me with information. And one of the big parts of my job is scooping together available literature, scooping together available injury patterns, and putting them into something coherent that has meaning for how we guide future activities. For a lot of what I do, which is BLAST, obviously we're not able to expose people to that on purpose for what should be pretty obvious ethical reasons. I would hope um, so. so we'll, yeah, yeah. So what we do is we'll take case reports. So after the fact, people will report things like what kind of charge went off, what their distance was from the blast, which is often very inaccurate, but still somewhat informative. Um, and then turn that into hopefully a useful safety standard or at the very least, a compiled examination of what the medical problems that they encountered were, what the population distribution of those types of problems looks like. And then that can be sent back to medical doctors to inform future treatment of other patients. So like if you have a mass casualty incident, we now know, I mean, we as in science now know what to tell the emergency doctors who are going to be treating the patients coming in roughly what they should be expecting. Well, thanks for that. You're making, uh, you're making our jobs obsolete. <laughs> I don't know if I'm making them obsolete. I'm just trying to give you a little more information before people start getting wheeled in through the doors. So, hey, if, if you could figure out how to make trauma easier to deal with, I would be thrilled to not have that part of my career anymore. Um, <laughs> so, so tell me about this. You you wrote this book about the Hunley. Let's paint me a picture. What is this thing, and why did you end up writing a book about it? Well, uh, let me answer that backwards. So I ended up writing a book just because basically I couldn't stop having the same conversation over and over again. Um, I would try anything I could think of to change the topic. And all people wanted to talk to me about for about two years was the Hunley. They would just keep circling back. Uh, so I realized that as a scientist, this is unusual. Normally, people don't want us to talk about our work in great detail. <laughs> Maybe uh, this is one project where people have a little bit more interest. 
I think the reason that they do have a little bit more interest is because this is kind of a historical mystery, right? So this is part of the Civil War. The first reaction is either they knew about the Hunley or they didn't know we had submarines in the Civil War at all. People fall almost exclusively into one of those two camps. And um, I think the key there is to lower your expectations of what a submarine is. (laughs) Um, So the Hunley was 40 feet long, which is really small compared to modern day subs. And it was only four feet in diameter. So the crew inside was really cramped. They were hunched over. They definitely could not stand up fully. And this submarine was pretty homemade. So it was hammered together out of recycled iron from an old steamship and Perhaps most interestingly, at least to me, is it was hand-powered. So there was one guy up at the front who could look out these teeny tiny windows and he had the ability to steer, but the other seven men in the crew were there to crank. And so they each had a handle and were seated along a bench, hunched over inside this little cylindrical tube, and they would turn this crank continuously, and that was what spun the propeller outside. In 1864, Charleston, South Carolina had a blockade going on, and the Union ships were really trying to um, limit the amount of supplies that could be brought into that city from outside because they had their army forces that were closing in from the land, then they had their naval forces blockading the city from the sea. And so that really kind of trapped the remaining Confederates there. This was the last major Southern city that was still standing. The goal of the Hunley and her crew was to blow up one of the ships in this blockade. So at that point, nobody really knows, like, I mean, people are vaguely aware of submarines because there's just been espionage going back and forth. Both sides are working on them and pretending they're not. And, um, you know, everyone's calling the other side unethical and this is not a moral way of conducting war, but they're both doing it. Uh, So they have some kind of advance warning that something weird like this might be happening. But in February 17th, 1864, the Hunley and her crew cranked out to the closest ship to their departure point, which was the USS Housatonic. And the way that they attacked was using what they called at the time a torpedo, but was actually stationary. So today we would just call it a bomb. And this torpedo was attached to the end of a 16-foot spar that they had bolted on to the front end of their boat. So basically, they're like a knight with a lance, and they crank their little human-powered submarine up to the Housatonic, and they jab it in the side with this little bomb. The bomb goes off. Five of the Housatonic crew, the uh, five of the Housatonic crew die. The Housatonic is on the ocean floor in less than five minutes. And the Hunley sort of drifts off and is never seen again. Yeah, it was really fast. Huh. So the a lot of the crew survived. They had about 200 men on, on the ship. And um, they survived by climbing up into the rigging. So I just love that mental image of, like, almost 200 people just scurrying up these masts and sheets of sail and just, like, hanging on there trying to stay above the waterline. Because it was February, so it was freezing cold. So um, it starts yeah, with but the slowest... I was gonna, sorry, it starts with the slowest <laughs> joust ever and then becomes like yeah. this total chaotic scene of running away from freezing water. Sounds awesome. Exactly. Exactly. Because they kind of knew what submarines were, but still not really. So this was definitely a terrifying thing. And they had like some arguments on deck over whether or not it was an enemy or it was a porpoise or it was a log or whatever. Um, yeah, but 
they had a couple of minutes of warning and all, most of them reacted by just running away, which I really can't blame them for. Um, but yeah, after the bomb went off, the Hunley floated away and she wasn't heard from again until they found her in 1995. But what was interesting was everyone expected a kind of obvious answer when they brought the submarine up. They thought that like, oh, you know, they asphyxiated inside and they would all be trying to get out the exits. They'd all be curled up there, which that's that's what typically happens with most submarine sinkings. You typically find the crew in kind of distressed positions near the exits, which is an indicator of asphyxia and hypercapnia, especially so high carbon dioxide. Um, but with the Hunley, the submarine crew's remains were also seated at their station. So they had zero skeletal trauma of any kind. Obviously, all the soft tissue is gone because it's been underwater for almost 150 years. But um, the bones of each crewman are just sort of collapsed into the bilge of the boat where they sat. The pilot was the first one kind of locked in place by sediment getting into the vessel. And he just looks like he slumped over on his bench. So... Yeah, that's that's where I picked up the story, uh, but that's what I think is makes it really medically intriguing mystery. So you had a bunch of people. What was it? Twelve people you said on this? It was eight. Eight yes. people. Eight people stuck in a in a sunken ship that weren't trying to escape, that just sort of quietly sat there and let themselves die. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I can kind of see your face since we're on video, but I think we both have the same reaction where that's just not realistic. Um, no. So there have been, yeah, there have been some attempts to portray this as deliberate. Um, there's a TNT movie made about the Hudley, and in the final scene, they're all just sort of sitting there together, like these strong Confederate motivated brethren and letting the water rise up above their necks together. And it's just, it's not realistic. And on top of that, when they recovered the boat, they also found stalactites inside the hull of the boat, hmm. which are, you know, those kind of droopy icicles you find inside caves. And those can only form in air. So not only was there air inside the Hunley's hull when she went down, but this air bubble stared in there for long enough for stalactites to grow. So she didn't just flood and kill her crew. They would have been able to stick their heads into the air bubble. Um, so if they, yeah. didn't, if they didn't drown, um, the only, then the next step I would ask you is about, uh, why didn't they suffocate? Like you would think, you know, hypoxia and right. people kind of quietly go down that way. So I think that was, that was the most plausible theory, um, for a lot of people for a really long time, because yeah, this boat is 1860s technology. It has like a little snorkel with the bellows, but even the historical accounts say that not that never really worked. Um, and I did some math on that too. And my math supports the idea that it really d it was not, it was not physically up to the challenge the way that it was designed. Uh, but what ends up happening with people enclosed in tight spaces with no air circulation is you not only have a consumption of the oxygen there, but you also have that continuous production of carbon dioxide. Hmm. And so we do have a lot of case studies from other people who have died this way where they've been in an enclosed area and there's always, even in cases where there's soft tissue remaining, there are very clear and obvious markers of physical distress from that high level of carbon dioxide. Um, 
Yeah. So basically what happens is as you're consuming the oxygen, you're producing the carbon dioxide, you start to have this preliminary sense of discomfort. Um, it first manifests as what people call air hunger. So you feel like you're kind of gasping for breath and you get an elevated pulse rate. And those symptoms do begin to increase the more you have exposure to carbon dioxide as well. And so this grows and grows and grows. A lot of people also will complain of dizziness, of effects on their vision, of severe nausea. Um, one of the things that's interesting about CO2 is when you have high levels of CO2 and then you remove it, you get this immediate withdrawal effect where a lot of people just start vomiting uncontrollably, um, so which lovely. is biologically fascinating, right? <laughs> it's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I've actually experienced high carbon dioxide unintentionally. I was diving on some inappropriate equipment, uh, for what I was doing. And I think I will challenge didn't you on end what up that actually that. was. <laughs> well, it was, yeah, it's fine. Um, <laughs> I didn't end up with the vomiting, but the CO2 withdrawal headache is, it's a serious migraine. Um, I was, you know, in the, I was on the deck of the boat, um, pressing my head into like the water, <laughs> trying to get the cold oh. on there. But, um, it's very miserable. unpleasant. So anyway, um, carbon dioxide wouldn't recommend it. Extremely unpleasant, noticeable symptoms. Um, and they continue to get worse. And there's actually some really interesting stuff from the field of psychiatry where they've historically always used carbon dioxide as a way to induce panic attacks in, in people with a history of anxiety. But recently they've done a little bit better about using control populations. They've shown that a lot of people have panic attacks with carbon dioxide, even when there's no history of anxiety for them or hmm. panic attacks at all. Right. So all of a sudden you add those things together with being in a submarine, being underwater, it's freezing cold. They can't see. Um, and there are eight of them. The odds that all eight of them peacefully withstood all of those symptoms together without trying to escape is it's really slim. So for me, that eliminated the theory of asphyxiation because based on the math, they would have had at least 10 minutes of warning time between when they first had to have felt CO2 and when they would have first risk any loss of consciousness. Um, so they were in this kind of race between burning through their oxygen supply and building up too much CO2. And you're and exactly. like obviously it's like CO2 is going to make them panic and run away, but the oxygen, they might quietly suffocate. And you're saying the, the CO2 would have built up well before they ran out of oxygen. Exactly. Um, okay. So there's some evidence that high levels of CO2 might not necessarily kill you on their own, but they definitely wreak some physiological mayhem. And so it's the battle of those two gases. Um, right. That slow joust thing leading to what would have theoretically <laughs> been a panicked response. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> so they didn't drown. They didn't suffocate. What happened? <laughs> Well, that's where I come in as a BLAST specialist. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that's really interesting about BLAST is the vast majority of people drastically misunderstand it because Hollywood has been lying to you for decades. What? Um, <laughs> yeah. Everyone is shocked to find out that Hollywood special effects are not based in real physics. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> 
Okay, so here's the general disclaimer that I give is you can blow anything up if you get a large enough bomb. So because I've already had some sassy emails where they're like, no, you can definitely move people with a bomb. I'm like, yeah, I agree. Um, You can move anything with a big enough bomb. But if you are moving someone with a bomb, it is well above the lethal threshold. So if you have someone that's experiencing a shockwave or a blast pressure waveform that has enough actual force behind it to translate their body, then the amount of damage that would do specifically to their lungs is it's 100% chance of fatality at that point. Gotcha. Um, so most, yeah, most real blast victims kind of just fall over, uh, which is a little bit anticlimactic. I realize it's more fun to watch Jason Statham being thrown across the room, but, um, but yeah. if you're thrown across and the room, so you're fun- not getting up again. Exactly. You're not getting up again. And, um, for blast trauma victims, a lot of the time, unless they are also hit with shrapnel, so unless you're hit with some kind of projectile, then you're not going to have any skeletal trauma as well. So to me, when I look at the Hunley, this is like your perfect scenario of potential blast trauma of everyone sitting where they were. They were just 16 feet from a bomb the size of a beer keg. Um, and nobody has skeletal trauma. And of course that's a little bit difficult because there's not really any soft tissue remaining. Um, but yeah, so that's where, that's where science came in. So that was part of my PhD dissertation looking at underwater blast trauma was setting up a series of experiments to see whether or not that theory was plausible. Okay. So how do you design an experiment to do this? I imagine it wasn't just putting a Uh, like a film canister in your bathtub and trying to blow water at it. That would be really fun. Um, No, actually that's not terribly far off. Like obviously I got a little bit more involved as things went on, but my very, very first day of just seeing how well my gauges were working was actually popping party balloons in a garbage can. Um, Sometimes you just want to, you know, do the cheap option to make sure all your gauges work. And so, um, No, a lot of blast experiments you can scale. And so you can create a scale model as long as you're doing it properly and you understand what the variables are. So I created a one six scale model. And um, so now I am the proud owner of a six and a half foot model of a Confederate submarine. It lives in my garage. And for these scientific experiments, I instrumented it in multiple different ways as well as instrumentation in the water. And I was working with an ATF agent who um, was nice enough to make sure I kept all my fingers and toes. And we set off live black powder charges. So I was able to um, produce some live explosive testing data to show what was happening with this blast. And so I don't want to give away too much. I've already kind of given away a lot about blast trauma. I feel like physiology is the point of the podcast. But, you know, there's a lot more in the book about that because people's first question is, how's it getting the sub? And so that's really the key to this solution is like, what's happening with this explosion and these guys in the submarine and what occurs with them next? And so that was really the key to the experiment was not just blowing things up in a pond, which was pretty fun, but also turning that into scientific proof um, in a credible way. That's really fascinating. Um, I, I don't, again, want to reveal too much of what you wrote about, but 
Would you be able to tell us a little bit about what kind of injuries happen from blasts like this, or is that going too far into the details? Oh, no, we can totally talk about that. Um, so typically with blast trauma, you have like different thresholds of exposure. And if you clear those thresholds of exposure, congratulations, you're now at risk of this new additional type of blast trauma. Great. So the easiest... Yeah, the easiest thing to injure, um, and again, I'm just going to ignore shrapnel for now because I think shrapnel is kind of obvious, like flying metal projectiles is something we've all experienced on some level in our lives that is also a risk with bombs, but um, in terms of the ones that are... Oh, I'm not saying they learn from it, but I think everyone at some point has been, you know, hit by a staple flying across the room. Like oh, we all know that that can, that can injure us. I've yeah. been the victim so, of many flying staples. Yeah. We can at least imagine what happens with those pretty easily. True. The ones that are less obvious are the ones from the pressure and the shock wave themselves. So the easiest organ to injure in the human body from a shock wave is the lungs. And that's because you basically have these like inflated airbags inside your chest wall. We're mostly water. Water is pretty good with shocks. It actually handles it fairly well. Um, but when you go from water to air, you end up with basically the same thing as if you have a bomb underwater and it goes off, you're going to get a plume. It's kind of the same effects inside the lungs. So basically you have the lungs, it's the technical word is spalling and you end up getting a lot of the alveol alveoli just filled with blood. Obviously that can cause a lot of respiratory distress. These are people who, even if they are blasted, they typically are not physically in a condition to crank a submarine much afterwards. So yeah. it's not saying 100% like, yeah, this is 100% chance that they were fatal. But this crew, you don't need to prove that. You just need to prove, hey, they're probably not cranking the four miles back home. Um, so that's the easiest to injure. And then... After that, you also sometimes see injuries in the gut, specifically um, the large intestine or um, sometimes in the small intestine, but normally at the junction between the two. And that's because also there's gas there. Like we have flatulence, we're human. Um, there is gas in our GI tract and it's a thing that happens. And when the blast waveform hits those pockets, that can also cause damage. And so you'll get people with either torn or bruised intestinal tract. Um, what's interesting is you don't really see it with stomachs. Like you don't, you don't see anything kind of upstream of there. So, you know, you're the medical doctor, you tell me, but, um, gotcha. So yeah. And so seeing... let's... Oh, sorry. No, that's fine. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you saying? Oh, no, no, that's, I was going to let you talk. <laughs> oh. uh, so it sounds like what you're mostly getting is transitions between uh, fluid spaces and air spaces. You end up with ruptures of that contained space and it causes distress or damage that way. Um, have you found ways to protect yes. people from it? Yes. So the best protection right now is actually body armor, which is great because it really? also works well for bullets. Shrapnel so, and blast, blast injuries. Yeah, it's just, it's all around a great idea to wear Kevlar. 
Um, so that does a really good job. And it's inter- one of the things that's interesting is not every additional material will provide a protective effect. So there are actually some really cool case studies. I mean, I say cool as like an injury person. It's right. It's these are human traumas. I'm, um, we got to keep that in mind, but they're really interesting cases because in the seventies, the, some of the Irish were making their body armor out of neoprene and that actually had the effect of exacerbating the blast. So they were protecting against shrapnel, but they were increasing the risk of blast trauma. Whereas modern day modern body armor reduces really well. Um, so you kind of have to be careful in your material selection there, which is pretty neat. And that's actually really interesting medically as well, because one of the reason we now see blast traumatic brain injuries from Iraq and Afghanistan is because people are getting blasted while they're wearing body armor. So if they had not been wearing body armor, they probably would have died of pulmonary trauma. But now with body armor that's protective, they're surviving the pulmonary trauma and they're now at like a higher level of blast exposure. And so we're starting to see blast traumatic brain injuries. And that's a whole different mechanism too, but yeah. That's fascinating. So like, is there a reason why neoprene versus Kevlar uh, amplifies the effect? Yeah, it's because it has bubbles, basically. Um, so some interesting physics happens when you have a bubbly medium, and the same thing happens inside the lungs. But basically what it's doing is it's softening the reflection off your chest. So when the blast hits your chest wall on a normal, a normal with no body armor, you have about 99% of it that actually reflects immediately backwards. But only that 1% is enough to still go in and cause a lot of pulmonary trauma if it's a large blast. But when you have any kind of like bubbly medium in general, what it does is it softens that reflection. So it's not necessarily increasing the amount actively. It's more just like passively allowing more to transmit. It's like a, it's like anything with sound waves. If you have you're, you're transmitting more of the sound or blast energy into the space rather than reflecting it backwards. Yes, exactly. You've okay. created a yeah. You've added a material, but you've actually like somehow made your room walls thinner by doing it. So almost like to use, uh, you can almost use soundproofing as a as a blast medium then. Yeah, you kind of can. Um, there are some differences in the physics once you really get into the nitty gritty. But if you're just thinking like conceptually, um, a lot of times thinking about sound is really good parallel. It's a really good way to think about blast. The analogy I like to use a lot is like hotel room walls. So, you know, blast, sound can transmit through walls. Blast can transmit through walls. Um, yeah. If you have good insulation, you're protecting yourself. <laughs> It's it's very it's dense materials that are capable of reflecting that wave back are the ones that are going to protect the underlying tissue. Yeah, it's more about the acoustic properties. Yeah, which are a function okay. of density. So I, yeah, yeah, you're I, on the right brain path. I just don't want to like, um, yeah, I'm trying to avoid getting too into the physics. We don't want to spend four hours talking about equations. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I kind yeah. of do, but I'm pretty sure the rest of the people listening might not. <laughs> But that's fascinating. That's really cool. 
yeah, yeah. Maybe another time we'll get beer ready. It'll be good. Sounds perfect. Okay. Yeah. So then are there, are there other things I'm thinking of just, um, mechanically from a, from a perspective, are there other ways to prevent blast injuries? Like if I keep my mouth open and I know that there's a blast to let the air out, or if I held my breath, would there be differences there? That's actually really interesting you said that because that's a now debunked reassurance that they used to give people. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, so there was, um, I traced it back because it was really infuriating to me that, um, some military operators were still coming to me and saying like, Oh, I heard if you keep your mouth open, then you're less at risk. Um, and there were also some rumors that if you, fully exhale because there's less gas in your lungs, you're not going to have oscillations, which that's not how that injury pattern occurs. Um, like that's a valid theory at the beginning, but it has since been disproved with careful science. So like, it's not a crazy thought. It's just, we've already done those experiments. We know that's not what's happening. And so, um, the original theory of keeping your mouth open or exhaling actually traced back to a paper from the 1940s where some doctors were watching rabbits and they were visually estimating where the rabbits were in their breathing cycles when they blasted. And so, that sounds I, like a challenge. I, I, yeah, like that's that seems like some bad science to me um, <laughs> because I cannot imagine you would be able to accurately and from a distance because you can't necessarily be right next to it. You're about to blast it. Um, accurately estimate where the tiny rabbit is in its breathing cycle. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, because of the way that these blast injuries occur, which is more the transmission of the waveform, they're not really related to anything like how full your lungs are of air. Um, you know, you're never able to fully exhale. You always have some gas in there no matter what. So maybe if you were able to like fill them with the fluorocarbon stuff from the abyss, Ooh. then we could talk. Yeah, so but we've got to get rid of this. Okay. Exactly. Um, but yeah, we'd have to get rid of those gas faces to get rid of the problem. Understood. What about, what about brain injuries? As you're saying now, we seem to actually be able to protect against body injury. What about the brain? The brain is a whole different basket of problems. Um, and it's really interesting and I'm hesitant to say too much just because it's such an area of active research that it'll probably be outdated by the time I even say it. Um, so that's the big ask. I mean, I'll, yeah, we can talk about it, but just that's the big asterisk is like, this is a really active field of research. And so um, that's important to keep in mind. Right now, there are two leading theories as to what is causing brain trauma. One of them is cavitation, which is when bubbles form in liquid and then collapse on themselves. So you see it most frequently on ship's propellers where the propeller's spinning really fast and that fast motion causes the liquid to expand into a gas form and then collapses back down. Hmm. That can be really injurious because you add during that bubble collapse, you're causing a lot of forces. So the theory is that as the blast waveform passes into the skull, it causes a cavitation bubble in the cerebrospinal fluid that then collapses back down and causes the neurotrauma. Now this was actually, it was a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, a really neat paper came out proving that that effect does occur in cadaver heads. 
So first of all, that's a weird study to have to do, right? But um, super good one. And so we know that that, yeah, we know, thankfully, we now know that bodies don't get thrown around. So it's not as bad as it sounds. Um, But uh, yeah, so we do know that this is an effect that occurs in cadaver heads. That doesn't always 100% mean that's occurring in living people. But it is an indicator that this is something that's worth studying further, right? So the second, the, yeah, the second major theory is um, that the problem is shear stress. And what shear stress is, is it's a specific type of motion in response to a force. Okay. So most people imagine when you put a force or a pressure on something that that object will deform like a sponge, like you can actually squish it. The brain is really difficult. Not it's it's moderately difficult to do that too. Like it's it's um, we call it bulk modulus. So it actually requires a substantial amount of force to kind of squeeze it. But what it it's very very easy to do is to shear, and that one you kind of have to imagine like a tall stack of paper. Mm-hmm. Put your hand on the top of the stack of paper and you pull it to the side. So you have not changed the volume of that stack of paper. It still takes up the same amount of space, but you have moved the layers relative to one another. And that's exactly what shear is. And so the theory is with brains, since it's so easy to shear, but it's so difficult to deform, that there is this momentary deformation where the neurons kind of slide apart. You get like this little disruption of the neurons and then it goes back. Um, So that's really important to know is a lot of people when they have blast traumatic brain injury, um, especially like military personnel, they get really worried. Is my brain now pudding? Like have I permanently destroyed it? No, it physically looks exactly the same. Like you cannot necessarily just look at a scan of it and see this deformation. Um, but you, that's the theory as well as that this shear is happening. And again, that's something that's active experimentation. We're looking at that. People are trying to come up with better ways to measure that in vivo subjects. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. And so what ends up happening with most people, the way that this presents is mild or moderate, you get kind of the same symptoms as a concussion. You got like some dizziness and confusion, For really severe cases, you're going to see bleeding on the surface of the brain. So that's where you're going to see like your subdural hematomas and things like that um, happening. And so for a lot of people, even a severe one, you know, that's when we send them to you. People like you, Dana, just patching them up left and right. We do the best we can, but we need people like you to tell us what the best way to fix that is. This is where engineering and medicine work well together. We'll just trade case reports back and forth. It'll be great. Sounds great. Um, Yes. Right. And so the thing with traumatic brain injury is that you can protect against it in similar ways that you can protect the lungs with Kevlar, but you also have a human being who needs to function. So if you have someone and they're, if you want to fully protect someone against blast traumatic brain injury, yeah, like just put like a one inch shield of Kevlar in front of their entire face, but now they're a very useless soldier. So, um, it's a trade-off. Yeah. It sounds like it's a challenge, but so we could protect them if we had enough material to reflect the blast wave. But at that point they may as well be standing inside of a bunker or, um, 
wearing right. a, a full face shield and have to use Jedi mind tricks. Right. Exactly. Like there's, you don't want to just put a big box over their head. Like they're just, they aren't yeah. going to be able to sight the rifles. So. Well, that sounds like a fascinating engineering challenge. Um, is there anything, <laughs> is there anything else in your book that you want to talk about or that you think would be interesting uh, for listeners to hear? Um, yeah, I think that there's, What's really interesting, first of all, we have not yet said the name of the book. So if people are still tuned in and they want to know more, the book is In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. I am Rachel Lance. It's for sale everywhere. Um, you know, I would give all of it away for free, but I cannot afford to do that. I was not born rich. So that's, you got you to gotta give the name. But uh, I think that's something that was really important to me about writing this book and you could probably empathize a lot about this, is just to let people know how real science and especially how real medical science works. Um, where unfortunately for us to get information, especially in my field, someone has to get hurt first. And I don't think any of us really enjoy that, but for me in particular, one of my big goals and why I love to do what I love to do is because there's always the hope that I can take that case. I can take anyone's trauma and then turn it into prevention or turn it into a safety standard or turn it into guidance for physicians who are looking at like, hey, what do I even expect here? Um, and so that's my favorite part of my job. And that's one of the things I really wanted to emphasize with this book, especially because a lot of times the Civil War is kind of a loaded topic. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that these people in the submarine were still human beings. And what that means is that their traumas are reflective of the things that can happen to our bodies even in 2020. Yeah, even though it's 130-something years old, right. humans haven't changed. We are still flesh and blood, whether we are in the north, the south, the east, the west, anywhere. And we still yeah, get Yeah, exactly. So that was my big goal with this book is to kind of drive that point home of be like, hey, once you start looking at this medically, we're all exactly the same. And there's something to learn um, from everyone's everyone's injuries. That's a that's a really great point to know. And especially these people suffered and had to die for this, unfortunately. But we can still learn from their deaths and help prevent future injuries from happening. I really like that. Yeah. So. Well done, Thanks. and congratulations on getting it published. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long road. So someone asked me today what year I started working on this project, and I realized it was seven years ago. So Ooh, it's been a lot, of, a lot of Civil War talk in my life. <laughs> I got you. So what's next? Where do you go from here? Well, I started this book as a little bit of a desperate grab um, at a way to make a full salary while still finishing a research project that was really important to me because um, I had graduated and I had some funding, but it didn't pay for me full time. But as it turns out, I really like writing. So now that I have a faculty appointment at Duke, um, they laughed at me a little bit because they said I was the first person they knew of that had specifically requested part-time, no tenure, and they didn't know what to do with that request, so they had to figure it out for me. Um, yeah, so I'm doing research half-time there, 
And then I've started working on my second book as well, which will be another mix of science and history and a lot of medical science. So, Well, I'll look forward to finding that one then. Um, but yeah, thank you again for thank coming you. on this show. It's going to be a few years. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It helps us reach a wider audience. We'd also love it if you would subscribe to our email list so we can update you directly when we post a new episode. Special thanks to our production team, Sultana Pefley, Jeremy Seeker, and Emily Stratton. Music is written and recorded by David Keough. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening and see you soon.